Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 76, Achieving the Cancer Moonshot in 10 Years. My guest, Diljit Singh, MD, is board certified in OBGYN in gynecologic oncology. She also has an MPH in maternal and child health and a PhD in health services research. Dr. Singh currently practices in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Dr. Diljit Singh, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks so much for having me. President Biden, in early February, and again in his State of the Union address, says he wants a cancer moonshot with the goals of reducing the cancer death rate by at least 50% over the next 25 years and to improve the experience of people and their families living with and surviving cancer and to end cancer as we know it today. What do you think of that cancer moonshot? Well, it's interesting. I, I think of a moonshot as something that's difficult to attain and setting a really high goal. And I appreciate how it was written, but decreasing the cancer rates by 50% in 25 years is well within our current knowledge and technology. Um, if we instituted all the prevention methods we know of, if we used all the screening techniques we already have, if everybody in the United States had access to both prevention, screening, and best care when they got diagnosed with a precancer or a cancer, we could easily, in much shorter than 25 years, decrease the cancer rates by 50%. That said, the moonshot certainly includes a lot of the things that I think are important, such as, you know, really truly investing in research investing in screening, thinking about access, and then thinking about both the patient's quality of life and the family and the caregiver's quality of life and the important issues that come up around um, having cancer. And so I appreciate that breadth, but I, I wish they'd set their goal just a tad bit higher. Well, when you say set their goals a tad bit higher, what would be your goals that you'd be interested in? Well, I think that if we, if we were able to, and I think we could do it in five to 10 years, right? Actually expand healthcare coverage to everybody. And as we pulled the profit motive out of healthcare, we could truly focus on prevention, on teaching people how to eat, teaching people how to exercise, teaching people how to manage their stress, um, teaching people how to sleep better, and there's excellent data showing that those interventions alone could decrease cancer rates by somewhere between 25 and some estimates say 75% by instituting prevention methods we understand right now, right? Decreasing smoking, for example, was a huge piece of that. Um, but things like HPV vaccine and, of course, all the lifestyle things I mentioned, the... Um, 
other pieces, if we took uninsured or underinsured Americans and offered them comprehensive preventive screening and cancer care services, and we identified more breast cancer, more colon cancer, more cervical cancer, more endometrial cancer at earlier stages, which we clearly have the technology to do, right? We could kind of get those things down. So let's say 50%, all right, I'll be generous in 10 years, we could do it. Um, And then to step past that, if we said, okay, you really, what could we do in 25 years? In 25 years, we could theoretically decrease the cancer rates by 90% if we did all of those things and then we funded research better. And we, we put our funding not in the, the most remunerative technologies, but truly thinking about curing cancer and thinking about enabling people to live the best lives they can and the longest lives they can in the setting of cancer. And then we haven't really, you know, I haven't mentioned genetic. You know, if we could identify everybody who has an increased risk for breast cancer because there was more broad-based genetic testing where, you know, people who have cancer get tested and then truly their whole family has access to the resources of genetic counseling and testing. And then if they test positive, adequate screening, you know, preventive therapies, whatever it is they need, I think it'd be reasonable to think that we could decrease cancer rates in 90% by 90% in 25 years. So let me see if I got this straight. You're saying based on the technology we currently have, we could do reduce cancer rates by 25 to 50% in five to 10 years. I think so. Yes. So I heard two aspects to that. One is our current healthcare system, the problems with that. But the other thing is changing behaviors. Now, changing behaviors, getting people to eat right is tougher. But let's just discuss what we could do if we changed our healthcare system. How would we need to change our healthcare system so that we could? reduce cancer and give people a better chance to survive. So I'm going to push a tiny bit back on one concept. Healthcare, part of healthcare responsibility. If you truly have a healthcare system, part of that responsibility is to help people change behavior. So if we had a truly everybody is covered, everybody has coverage for everything, for counseling, for prevention, for talking to an exercise physiologist, to, for talking to a nutritionist, and having that be a focus of what healthcare does, right? And, and maybe I'm being like too subtle about it, but we, everybody doesn't have healthcare insurance, right? Everybody doesn't have access. Even people who have insurance don't necessarily have access to prevention or screening. So when I say, you know, everybody gets covered, I think about a plan, I mean, We've, you and I have talked about Medicare for all, right? As the idea of taking what's actually would be an expanded, expanded, improved Medicare for everybody, adding things like the other parts that aren't currently covered. And the other piece what, that I think about when I think about that is a lot of the problems with why 
trying to counsel people on how to enact behavioral change, the limitations are placed by how we reimburse, by the profit-driven nature of our system, right? If there's pharmaceutical companies that are going to make more money by giving people drugs to treat their diabetes, and their investment is in selling those drugs, and our system is invested in giving people complex diagnoses because that gets the most reimbursement, then the actual solution to diabetes, most diabetes, not all diabetes, but most diabetes, getting people to eat better, right? That, that's the problem. So we, when, when I say we need to eliminate profit from our system, I think about, yep, it would be great to get the 25 to 30% of our current healthcare budget that goes to waste because it's either administrative costs or it's pure profit, right? So getting all those dollars back into the system would make it better, but eliminating the profit-driven nature of the system would also help us reprioritize the things that healthcare actually should do as opposed to the things that healthcare systems can charge people for that are that that are built around a profit-driven system. It's you know, even if you think about the time you spend face-to-face with a doctor and the things the doctor is thinking about, like they have to include certain things in their notes. And, you know, in the United States, doctors spend 40%, have 40% longer notes than anyone else in the world. And it's not because we're so prolific. It's because we're so busy trying to make sure everything's covered so I can keep my office open or so I don't get in trouble with whatever organization I work with for not checking all the boxes that the insurers need to justify whatever care we're providing. And then acknowledging, right, the insurers don't cover preventive services. They never have. And it's, again, because doing an operation, selling a drug, being a part of a system that generates revenue is a driving factor of our current healthcare system, making sure Americans are the healthiest they can be and living the best, longest quality lives they can is not how our system is set up. So not only do you think we need to change the way we finance our system, you also think we need to change the focus of the system. Yep. And it would be natural because, I mean, you can talk to a a doctor a subspecialist doctor, you can talk to a primary care doctor, you can talk to a nurse, you could PA, everybody understands this. Everybody understands the importance of the things we can achieve if we take the time to talk to people. But everybody feels like they don't have that time, that the system doesn't offer them the time to give their patients what they need. Well, and if I may, just a very simple example with myself, I recently went on Medicare and because I wanted traditional Medicare with a supplement, I couldn't keep my current um, doctors. They were only on Medicare Advantage. But in going to those doctors, so there were probably about three other doctors that I went to after I saw my primary care physician at her recommendation. And each doctor, I had to fill out basically the same forms of medical history because we don't have an integrated system. And then 
that creates problems for coordinating care because we don't have an integrated system. And if we took out some of the profit motive, we could get an integrated system. There's no reason why we can't have one now, but that's a whole nother issue. Well, it is a whole nother issue, but I will say this, you know, the, the challenges around truly integrating our systems are multifold, right? There's the profit part of it. There's the, there's the part of it that is about priorities, you know, and how, uh, how things are entered. And then the other part is security, the security of health information. And when people are worried about things like life insurance coverage and, you know, we think we've fixed the problem of pre-existing conditions, but every so often it comes back as an issue. But there's reasons that people kind of are, are worried and want to control, you know, control and protect their healthcare information so strongly that have to do with how our system is set up. And so, yeah, just, and, and truthfully, like if you think about waste, right? I talked about administration is a waste. I talked about profit is a waste in our system, but redundancy of, you know, EMR systems and the time on both sides that patients, their families put in, and then the times that the providers put in searching for information to make sure they've got all the best information they can. You know, one of the biggest tasks my, my team does, you know, in a non-integrated system is search out people's CAT scans and their records and their pathology and having to call and then get the copies of the, you know, digital records or whatever it else it is, if I need images, becomes even more complicated. So that's a waste of high quality healthcare providers' time for a nurse to be chasing down pieces of information that in this day and age should be easily accessible digitally. Absolutely. The, the places that we would get dollars back if we eliminated profit from our system are endless. And the places that we would get time and energy back on both ends are, are, right, are things you don't even think about, right? I was listening, talking with a patient recently who was talking about how much time she spent on the phone trying to figure out what was covered, what wasn't, why it wasn't, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, I don't think we always put a dollar value on the time that people put into these things? I would definitely say that we don't. I have heard it considered how much the time the doctors spend on administrative tasks in fighting insurance companies. I really haven't heard much discussion about how much time people have to spend doing that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about numbers. In August of 2020, the Commonwealth Fund came out with a report on un the uninsured and underinsured. And they said more than 80 million people are either underinsured or uninsured. And that's just a tremendous amount of people. And then when you think we're talking about cancer and how many, I don't know what the numbers would be, but how many of those people even if they found out they had cancer, 
could not get treated because they couldn't afford it, which goes back to the problem you were talking about before. So do you have any idea if we had a Medicare for all system, just with cancer, how many people you think would be saved? I don't have a number, actually. That's a great question, Joe. But what I'll say is one in every three women and two of every three men will be diagnosed with cancer over the course of their lives. So if I were a quicker mathematician, I could probably spit it out for you for the 80 million uninsured, depending on age. So that's over a lifetime. Um, but the numbers are tremendous. The numbers are tremendous. And the other pieces that we aren't able to do good math on when we look at our cancer rates compared to the rest of the world, our screening is lower substantially if we look at numbers of pap smears, mammograms, et cetera, rest of the developed world. But even our cancer survival rates are challenged by people's lack of access. Well, the other thing too, even people who get treatment in I apologize, I did not check for this number, but I think I've heard that roughly 50% of the people who get treatment are basically use their life savings or are near bankruptcy within a few years of getting that treatment. Do you know what that number is? Or so 30% of all bankruptcies are related to medical expenses. Something where between 55 and 70% of people who go bankrupt because of medical expenses had some form of private insurance at the time of their diagnosis. Cancer-specific numbers are really limited. I've heard some cancer-specific numbers, but I, I don't have great faith in them because I think they're undercounts. I, I think that the most telling number is the issue of concept that you have insurance at the time of diagnosis. And the, the, over the course of your illness, you enter bankruptcy and it can be a multifold, right? It can just be the cost. It can just be the deductibles and the co-payments and the fact that you were living at the edge of your budget as it were. There's a great deal of data on the number of Americans who forego some other vital, you know, health, you know, some food, shelter, car, education, the choices that people are forced to make um, in order to cover their medical expenses. But the um, other piece of that is the fact that we tie our insurance to our employment. And if you get a diagnosis that causes you to lose your job, right? And, and there's some great irony in that for some reason, I, you know, it makes no sense to me, right? That of course there's times that people are unable to work, you know, during, you know, an ovarian cancer diagnosis, for example, there's a very complex surgery that takes a minimum of six to eight weeks to recover from. There is intense chemotherapy that some people may be able to do some parts of their job, but you definitely couldn't do a full-time job for most things. And that can last six to eight months, right? And so the idea that, again, like, as we think about giving people the best chance of being cured of their cancer, of surviving with the fewest long-term you know, health impacts, being able to focus on taking care of yourself 
and get through your therapies and get the most out of your therapies. Right? Those again are all things that we can't measure. It's almost impossible to measure those when we look at cancer statistics. But as a practicing oncologist, I can see that, right? I can see the difference between somebody who has an employed spouse and that's where their, their insurance comes from versus somebody who was the primary caregiver and the choices they have to make over the course of their therapy, including things like delaying their radiation or having delays between their therapy that decrease their likelihood of being cured of their cancer. Well, that brings up some other points. So let's talk about Medicare for all now. And I mean, you obviously touched on it before, but specifically, if we went to a Medicare for all system, how do you think that would change things both, as you mentioned, in terms of people getting treatment? It seems like we're undercounting based on what you said. So how would that change things in terms of treatment and also in terms of being able to change the behavior? So, right, so those two key pieces. One is everybody gets covered, right? So everybody gets access to prevention, screening, and best treatment and best support during that. And during that time, they're able to make appropriate choices about what they do with their time and energy because they're not worried about losing their coverage. So there's that huge piece. The other huge piece is by taking the profit motive out of every layer, right? So there's the profit motive of health insurance. There's the profit motive of pharmaceutical companies and how they gear things. There's the profit motive of physical therapy, hospice, home health, you name it, somebody's making money from it. And if we removed all of those and we just got money back, money back to take care of people, money back to have social workers, money back to have cancer navigators, money back to have nutritionists and physical therapists and exercise physiologists. You know, one of these arguments that I hear is, gosh, we can't get rid of the health insurance industry. So many people would lose their jobs. That makes me crazy because I know those people, and there have been studies done, wouldn't they rather be actually providing care, right? And the bills are being written so that those people would have access to education to actually do a meaningful job, not where they're part of a system that's denying access to care, but where they're actually providing care, providing counseling. From an oncology perspective, from a cancer perspective, Medicare for all would address so many parts, so many of the flaws of our current system. And again, like I said, it's the profit motive and the strange, tangled, weird way we've set up how we pay for things that has made prevention the bottom of the, the list. While you know, like I said, I don't think you could find anybody who touches patients and takes care of them that wouldn't say giving people good life habits and behaviors is the most important thing you can do as a healthcare provider. Let me ask another question, and I don't think this gets discussed enough, but 
As a doctor, when you're talking to a patient, are you concerned that an insurance company might deny the care? So we haven't talked about where I actually work. So I've worked in um, university settings and private settings, and currently I am part of uh, Kaiser Permanente. Within Kaiser, once somebody's there, the likelihood that their service is denied is less. They may have a huge copay. So I may have one patient who has a $20 copay for a PET scan or a CAT scan, and another patient who has a $100 or $200 even higher copay. And so those pieces I can't predict, um, and patients will come back to me. Same with the drugs that are covered by different people within Kaiser. You know, sometimes I can give them exactly the kind of estrogen therapy or something that I would want. Sometimes I have to alter that because of what's covered. Um, And then there's other things, you know, one of the best ways to deal with chemotherapy side effects has been shown the nausea, the nerve damage, other things, the uh, body aches, the fatigue is acupuncture. And within my system, a relatively small percentage of patients will have their acupuncture therapy covered, but most of them won't. Um, so I will say I'm, I'm a little more protected and my patients within Kaiser are a little more protected by this. Um, but they're not completely protected. And certainly I spent most of my career um, working in, in settings where that happened all the time. I remember, you know, ovarian cancer is kind of unique in, from other cancers in that trying to remove cancer cells at the time of surgery, even when they've spread, has the potential to benefit the likelihood of going into remission and being cured. So we do relatively radical operations, cutting out literally trying to get out every visible cancer cell. And then we work really, really hard to, within two weeks of time, get them started on chemotherapy as long as they're healthy enough to, because we don't want to give those microscopic remaining cells time to grow and divide. And I remember having a patient who went through a really challenging surgery and she, you know, just, it was amazing. And her family, and they got her through the surgery and she was ready to get chemotherapy, and we couldn't get absolutely standard used for at least 10 years prior drugs covered because one of them had changed a little bit. We were using a slightly different formulation, and her chemo ended up being delayed for six weeks before we started, right? And basically, if those cancer cells grow and divide every two to four weeks, it was almost like we wasted that operation, right? You know, and that's like one of a million examples, one of a million examples. So it seems to me that if we had a Medicare for all system, as you said, doctors could provide the care that they want, but it also would seem that they would have more time to deal with patients because they wouldn't be worried about, oh, is this covered or is this not covered? Or what are the copays? Can the patient afford it? Well, I think that most physicians' offices, most hospitals, most clinics employ a bunch of people to do things that are a waste of time, right? Mm-hmm. To, to do this. When I was at Northwestern in Chicago, we had, if I recall then, I think we had five people who, we had five chemo nurses. And I want to say between the hospital and our office, I think we had at least seven people who were helping us with the billing. 
where they would call and get pre-authorization for surgery, call, get pre-authorization for chemos, um, for other drugs. And to have had those five bodies, and they were wonderful people, our billers, they were, you know, they would have loved to do direct patient care and be, you know, have that kind of education. They were doing something that helped patients, obviously, right? By enabling them and by doing some of the groundwork for patients, they were helping patients, but wouldn't they have loved to have done something more directly impacting patients' health? Well, I've done some research and on average, a hospital has one billing person for every hospital bed that they have. And a few years ago, I asked the hospital system in Toronto how many billing clerks they had. And they were a 1,200-bed hospital, and they said they had seven people dealing with billing. If you were in the United States, you'd have about 1,200 people dealing with billing. And that just shows you that the Canadian system is much more efficient and generally provides better care. I mean, no system's perfect. Yeah. I mean, no system's perfect, but there's efficiency. And then there's, you know, one of the things we talk about in America is that we are a nation of innovators and we are a nation of, if you work hard enough, if you dream big enough, you know, that you can do anything. And I find it really challenging that people literally will not change jobs, not leave a job they hate because they don't want to lose their insurance. And I see this over and over again, right? Artists who are doing nine to five jobs that they hate and are unsatisfied with and are giving them ulcers and the stress of those jobs and how that impacts, you know, your risk of coronary artery disease, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, right? They're basically in jobs they don't want to be in because they're afraid of losing their health insurance, you know? And so again, that's something so hard to, to measure, but I'm jealous of the Canadians, right? They don't have that. Those people can work regardless you know, they can pursue their dream. They can innovate. They can try to start their own business without this worry. And then you even think of like the small business owner who's got to deal with providing health insurance to their employees. And that being a major driver for not expanding business um, or for driving small business under because they can't cover healthcare costs. And then those small businesses can't compete with bigger organizations that have big healthcare contracts. Um, yeah, the levels that this profit-driven system impacts American life is, is astounding, and it's astounding that we tolerate it. I entirely agree, and I think that most people don't realize what a profound and detrimental impact our current healthcare system has, both directly on people's ability to get health care and indirectly the economic consequences. And I've had podcasts on the economic consequences of our healthcare system. And the first one was by Professor Gerald Friedman. You've probably heard of him, but he's really great. But when I did that podcast, my reaction was, oh my God, this is much worse than even I imagined. 
I think it's important for people to realize that the way our healthcare system affects people, unless they've really been through it with a serious disease, but I think it's much worse than most people can even imagine because I don't think they've really had to deal with our healthcare system in a serious way. Well, you know, it's so challenging because I do think as somebody who takes care of cancer patients, the number of patients who say to me, like, I thought I had the best insurance until I got diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, the idea that I am a good consumer of say, I want to buy a car. Well, I got a big dog. I like to go skiing. So I need, you know, four wheel drive. Um, I have this philosophy. So I want electric or hybrid. Like I am a relatively potentially good consumer of the auto industry. None of us are good consumers of the healthcare industry because none of us know what's going to happen. None of us knows we're going to be in a tragic accident. Nobody knows if they're going to be diagnosed with a rare pancreatic cancer, on and on and on. And so our ability to, in quote, be good consumers of health insurance is it's a joke. It's, it's totally unreal. Not to mention people don't truly have choice. Employers have choices. Employers have choices about the health plans they offer to their employees, but employees don't do that. And so that issue of you think you have pretty darn good insurance until you need it. I see it every day, every day consistently. And again, it's not something that people anticipate. It's not something that people think about. I think that's a great point. And the example I like to give is most people, for example, don't know that they're going to have a heart attack. But if you're suddenly having a heart attack, you can't say, oh, I'm going to call this hospital and see what they'll charge to treat me. And you don't even know what the treatment will be because it depends on the severity. But you're not going to sit there and say, oh, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to call another hospital. I mean, it's ridiculous to expect people to try and call four or five hospitals when they're having a heart attack to see which is the cheapest. And you're not going to anticipate necessarily that you have one. Well, the truth is there shouldn't be a cheapest, right? They should all cost the same. Yeah. Right. That, that's, that's, that's the challenging part for me is, yep, cost of living, the cost of rent, the other things may influence the cost of a procedure. But truly, like when it gets down to it, they should all cost the same. It's the same skill set. It's the same blood tests. It's the same things in general. Obviously, we individualize care. And obviously, there might be a difference in a more populated or less populated area on and on. But in general, you shouldn't need to do a cost comparison because they should cost the same in the same city. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I think we've covered really the important pieces of what it would take to decrease cancer rates by 90% in 25 years. And I would, I would challenge, you know, whether it's the Biden administration or anyone else who comes to really take on a moonshot, really reach for the sky and say, maybe we're going to, you know, cure cancer. And again, I've taken care of a lot of people and I understand we can't always cure cancer, but we could achieve so much more with 
the skills, the techniques, the providers that we have, the technology. And then, I mean, I do believe we have brilliant minds who care about this. And, you know, we didn't talk a ton about right now how cancer research is supported and funded, but it is so driven by people whose goals are to make money, not cure cancer. And how that impacts the solutions we come up with can't be measured. If you're trying to come up with a drug that's going to make you billions of dollars, which people have, and you know, you're going to cure something versus manage something, you know, you make the choice to make the drug that manages something, doesn't cure something. We see that in diabetes. Now, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that somebody's got the cure to cancer hidden somewhere in their lab. But I think if every lab was really just trying to cure cancer, not develop a drug to solve one little piece of it, I think we'd be there. Well, I think that's a great point. And I just want to emphasize something that was said, I think, several times in the podcast is if we had Medicare for all and did some other things, there's a lot we could do to cure and reduce cancer today instead of having to wait five or 10 years. And I think that's a very important point. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think that this is something people know, right? People know in their hearts that their health could be better if they had access to the things they needed. Well, I think I'm going to push back because I don't think many Americans realize that if we had a different system, we could do better. They tend to think this is the only way it is. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think people understand that there's better there, but I think you're right. They can't imagine a different system. So people will say things like, well, you know, I really wanted to get in there for that checkup, but I didn't really have the money right then. So I put it off. I hear over and over. I knew that for this bleeding, I should have come in, but right at that time, I couldn't really afford it. You know, we were, we just moved houses. We didn't have the money for my co-pays. And so I think people don't make that last leap of there's not something flawed about them and the decisions and choices they made that led to the outcome. There's something flawed about the system we have that forced them to make those kinds of choices. Again, I think that's an important point. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for helping people understand these challenging topics. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.